Hey everybody. I thought I was behind it. Sorry about that. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for uh, your gospel. Thank you for nothing being better than you. I pray that you do whatever uh, you need to do in us to help that uh, become a reality even now. Uh, let us hear from you and get what you want us to get and respond appropriately. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Let me get my glasses. So, um, whether you are aware of it or not, regardless of what the news says or doesn't say, uh, we are at war. Every minute of every day, without exception or relief or let up, there is a massive, intense spiritual war being fought between God and Satan. Paul makes it clear in the New Testament that the unseen world is a battlefield. Eternity is at stake. Whether you know it or not, we, you and me, if we are born again children of God, are infantry men and infantry women in this war. Paul refers to us as soldiers. And this is true regardless of whether you or I like hearing it. And it's true whether you or I feel like we're up to it in this particular moment. I'm not just saying this to scare people because of what's going on in other parts of the world. I'm saying this to make clear how vitally important our topic is today. We're continuing our series in Matthew on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to cover what Jesus has to say about prayer. So we'll be walking through Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, if you want to look it up. What we're going to go over today makes clear that prayer is way, way more than just saying a few big words to sound good and to check a box. It's also way more than just asking a heavenly Santa Claus to give us what we want for Christmas. John Piper says it like this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comfort in the den. I love this picture of a wartime walkie-talkie. For me personally, uh, I'm pretty task-oriented. I tend to be practical and future goal-focused, so it's probably not a surprise to hear that over most of my younger adult life, I've struggled to spend time praying because I've just had so much I needed to do. But as I age and as I attend more funerals, uh, this is changing. The older I get, the more I'm remembering that without God's direct and continued involvement, I'm hopeless. I'm completely helpless. So this causes me to pray more. I mean, think about it. I cannot even control my heartbeat in this particular moment. It's a gift of God's grace. My legs working, my mouth working, my brain firing off, and there being words that come out of my mouth. All of these are given to me in this moment by God. It's Him causing it all to happen. And the same is true for you. Your heart beating in this moment. Your ability to sit, hopefully in at least relative comfort, and stay upright and pay attention not doze off, but pay attention and understand what I say. All of these are gifts from God. What that tells us is that if we can't sit or stand or think or speak 
or comprehend right now without God showing up, there's literally nothing we can do on our own. Nothing. We are completely dependent people. So combine these two elements. A massive universal war going on, and us, supposedly the soldiers in this war, completely helpless on our own. Sheep to be devoured by the wolves. In response to this situation, we learn from Jesus that what I've just said is 100% true. It's 100% accurate. And in response, we are commanded to pray. And as we do this, and as we do it well, which we'll cover today, something really interesting happens. We actually become effective soldiers in this war. We become innocent as doves and wise as serpents. And the enemy is the one who is troubled instead of the other way around. This passage today, again in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15, is about prayer, with the majority of it covering what's known as the Lord's Prayer. It's also been called the Model Prayer and the Disciples' Prayer. Now, you may be familiar with another prayer in John chapter 17 that's known as the High Priestly Prayer, and that's the prayer that to me seems more like the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus is praying to his Heavenly Father, specifically for the church and for believers, for believers then and believers now. He was praying for us. It seems appropriate to call that prayer the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm sure some seminarians can disagree with me on this, but in this passage here in Matthew chapter 6, I like the name the Disciples' Prayer, as Jesus is telling or showing the disciples how they should pray. He's modeling the way that they should pray and how we should pray today. When James and I scheduled today's date for me to preach... He informed me that this would be the text that we'd be walking through. I responded and was like, wow, that's a lot to cover. (laughs) Um, And he said, yeah, it is. I once did a four-part sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. You need to do it in one, so good luck with that. So we may be done by supper time or by the time it finishes raining. I'm just kidding. Um, I'll do my best to cover this well. With Jesus' help, we'll get from this passage today what he wants us to get. In preparation for today, I've learned from the insights of Daniel Aiken and John Piper. These are two of my favorite go-tos in sermon prep, and I'm so grateful for how God has used them to sharpen me. So let's read our text. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a lot. So this is, what we know is that this is a continuation of Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So the context is Jesus sitting on the hillside and preaching to the people. 
In the first verses of chapter 6, he's just covered the topic of giving and our motives. James covered this last week. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's addressing the heart and the why in our giving. Now starting in verse 5, he turns to prayer, and he's addressing prayer really in two parts. The first part is verses 5 through 8 where he talks about the heart or the why in our praying. In other words, what are the motives when we pray? The second part is verses 9 through 15 in which this is the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer. He's focused on the how of our praying. The first thing we notice in our prayers is that they should be motivated by sincerity. They should be motivated by authenticity. Even though God already knows me, he wants me to be the real me when I'm praying. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Right away we notice the word when. Jesus says when you pray meaning he expects prayer to be a regular habit in the lives of his disciples. Prayer is not to be just a last resort when everything else has failed. In actuality, it should be our first resort, what we do before we engage the world around us and the task in front of us. Not sure about you, but at times I fail at this. I'm busy doing. It seems to fit in the category of progress, not perfection. And I want to keep growing in this area. The next thing I notice is that Jesus uses a familiar warning, who not to be like. You must not be like the hypocrites. This is a command, it's not a suggestion. Do not pretend to be something or someone that you're not. Don't put on a show for others to see. Hypocrites, seemingly always the Pharisees in Jesus' day and who he called out the most, loved to flaunt their false righteousness in front of the crowd. It was true then and it's true now. Jesus says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, Jesus is saying we should be sincere, and hypocrites are not sincere. They pray for show, and they pine for the compliments of other people. And Jesus says this is the reward that they crave, and this is the reward they're going to get. Apparently their reward is not going to be answered prayers. It's not going to be intimacy and communion with him or his peace and joy. But whatever pat on the back that hypocrites seek, whether they get it or not, that's what they're going to be getting. The issue of sincerity in prayer is something that we in the church need to stay vigilant about. We need to ask ourselves, do we pray longer in public than we do in private? Or maybe more importantly, do we pray differently in public than we do in private? We should ponder these questions. And then verse 6 says what we are to do instead. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here Jesus is saying he wants us to pray in secret. Now the Bible is full of public prayer. Jesus is not condemning public prayer in this passage. I just prayed a few minutes ago in public. Public prayer is an important part of corporate worship. Jesus prayed in public but it never took the place of his private prayer. One thing I think Jesus is addressing here is the danger of ritualistic public prayer that is more a formality than anything else. It's it's important that we actually mean what we pray. For example, let's take saying a blessing before we eat a meal. 
I've been in the habit of doing this. I was brought up doing this, and it, it stuck. I've done it for a long time. My son Gavin won't eat or let anyone else feel comfortable about eating until we say grace. It's remarkable how sometimes we can sit down, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to grow, man. I'm ready to eat. And he stops, and I look over at him, and he's got that look like, I'm waiting. I love this. This is so cool. I love that about Gavin. I think saying grace before meal is really good. And maybe we pray the same words every time, or maybe we mix it up. Either way, whatever we pray, I think Jesus wants us to really mean it. Say it slow enough or thoughtful enough to actually mean what we say. Or just don't say it at all. I remember a good friend of mine who was a non-believer telling me a number of years ago that he knew something was different about me, not by how I behaved, <laughs> not by necessarily what I said. Maybe that was part of it. But he knew something was different about me because I said a quick blessing before we ate. And we would eat lunch together probably three or four times a week. He later became a believer and brought this up as something that impacted him on his journey toward Christ. I mean, who knew? I certainly didn't. I probably was embarrassed when I was doing it. But what Jesus wants for us here is to be in the habit of finding a private place to pray. Alone. We shut the door. We shut out all the noise and the activity outside the space. And then we pray. And we really pray. Why? Why do we need to shut the door? Why do we need to be alone? I think a large part is because who we are in secret is who we really are. Jesus wants to hear from us when we know no one else is around. He wants to know what we really think and feel and care about. Maybe what we really hate and what we really fear and what we really crave. He wants to hear what we have to say when only He is listening. It's this idea of the audience of one. The best prayers I've prayed in my life are the ones, at least from an effectiveness standpoint, the ones that I've kind of tracked and kept up with, seem to be the ones when I dump my feelings before God in private. I mean, I just unload. And then I end the prayer with a real quick question. What do I do with all of this? And I love asking God this question. Because I know deep down that the answer is not up to me. I don't have to answer this. He will answer it. Maybe quickly, maybe slowly. But instantly I feel relieved. I feel his peace and even joy in that moment. I sense him saying, I'll handle it from here. I just wanted you to bring me in. And I wanted you to confess that you're powerless. I'll take it from this point. Just knowing that my Heavenly Father knows it all, unfiltered, is an awesome place to be. The true disciple prays because they love God and they believe in his power is to connect with this power. Again, it's about the audience of one. So Jesus wants us praying in secret. And then he adds in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Here Jesus is condemning the mindless and senseless phrases and long sayings that certain pagan religions require. Other world religions have specific chants and phrases that they say over and over and over, often at certain times of the day. Charles Quarles says in his book about the Sermon on the Mount, 
Although Jesus was devoted to prayer, his prayers were not memorized recitations given at the whim of the clock. His prayers were intensely personal, often spontaneous, and an expression of his deep communion with his Father. So Jesus was saying, when you pray, don't babble like the pagans and the Gentiles who say a bunch of nonsense kind of over and over. See, we're not praying to a dead God. We're not praying to some wooden idol. We're praying to the living, all-knowing God of the universe who's our heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus says he already knows what you need before you ask him. He's aware of our situation and he is attentive. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. I love that. Our Heavenly Father is keenly aware of our needs. He wants us to call on Him and ask Him for His help and His protection, His wisdom and His insight, His courage. Ask Him for peace and joy. Speak from the heart. By the way, I think it's okay to journal it. Or write it down. I do this. I have a prayer list that I go through. I'm getting old. I forget. There are people here, I don't, want, I don't want to forget you. I don't want to forget certain things that are coming up. So I write it down. And this helps me and I want to continue to pray about certain things. So I, I refer to this list. Just talk to him like the perfect heavenly father that he is. And this brings us to a question. Okay, Billy, that's why I should pray. How should I pray? How do you do this? The good news for you and me is that A, there is an answer, and B, you or I didn't come up with it, but Jesus did. This question of how we should pray is in essence what the disciples asked when they asked Jesus to teach them to pray in Luke chapter 11. There Luke records an abbreviated version of this Lord's Prayer. The expanded and more well-known version is recorded in our text today. So we'll read this again, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, I like the term for this prayer is the disciples' prayer because in this, Jesus gives an easy-to-memorize model prayer. It's the model prayer from the model teacher. It also provides an outline of priorities for the Christian life. There's an order to these priorities. Verses 9 through 11, we see that first in the order when we pray is starting with our Heavenly Father. Then in verses 11 through 13, we see that the next in order is dealing with our concerns. This is where we pray for our stuff. And lastly, verses 14 and 15 provide additional commentary and instructions on our prayer for forgiveness that was in verse 12. It's difficult to overstate the importance and power of effective prayer in the lives of those of us who are God's redeemed people. When the church prays, God moves. James 5 through 17, excuse me, James chapter 5 verse 17 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Our prayers are to be about so much more than just a blessed life, although that's that's okay to ask for. So much more than that our week goes smoothly. Again, that's a good thing to pray too. It's way more than just a blessing over a meal, although that's wise to do. Our prayers move our Father. They impact our lives and the lives of those that we care about. When we pray for ministries and missionaries that we support, it changes the lives of the least of these that are so precious in God's sight. 
So when Jesus lays out his model for how to pray effectively, the order of what we say appears to be important. Verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How we start is important. We're calling on the all-powerful, all-holy God of everything. It's knee-knocking and shocking all in the presence of God. We should tremble. Way too often I don't tremble. And this is sin that I'm repentant for. I want to change. I want to see who He really is. What a privilege it is to call on Him as our Father. So we, and we want His name to be honored. The Christian Standard Bible says it like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. That's good. The idea is that we esteem, revere, and treasure God's name literally above everything else. Again, I love how John Piper puts it. Nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe is for the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will is done for that. Humans have bread-sustained life for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. Everything else is about one thing, the hallowing of God's name. So we begin by giving credit to the only one to whom credit is due and giving value to the only one to whom value is due. We give praise to the only one to whom praise is due. Then verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So now our first petition is still not for our stuff, but for His kingdom advancement. Now this has a strong missionary call to it. It invites us to cultivate a healthy view of the future and also end times. We're inviting God to rule and reign now all over the universe and in our own heart as well. It draws us to the promise of Revelation 21.4. I love this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Over the last month, I've been to three funerals. One was a close first cousin and a roommate of mine in college who passed away suddenly at the age of 51. That's younger than me. The longer I live and experience things like this, the more I crave Revelation 21.4. I want it to happen today, like even right now. Verse 10 expresses this in the form of a prayer. And then it goes on to add, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want His kingdom to come as soon as possible. So this is a natural continuation of what we want to happen in the meantime. I want His will to be done in my life and in my heart, and in my mind. I want His will to be done in my work, and in my business life. I want His will to be done in my relationships. I want His will done in my health, and in my emotional well-being. Ultimately, in everything, I want His will to be done. And Jesus models this, for better or worse, uh, in His most intense time before being crucified. Matthew 26 records Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane during His greatest hour of agony just before being arrested and falsely convicted and murdered. He says in verse 39 of chapter 26 in Matthew, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then in verse 42 he says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Then one last time in verse 44. 
he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Three times we see Jesus confessing his lament, his desire for this to pass, but submits to the will of his Father. I don't know about you, but I'm glad he submitted. I don't want to brush by this, though. Praying your will be done is a dangerous prayer. It costs Jesus his life. Praying this means me intentionally confessing that he rules completely. He rules sovereignly. And I can get to that point pretty quick. But at the same time, it also means the death of Billy's rule. This gets sticky. Speaking honestly, praying this can really scare me. In my weaker moments, I can equate God getting his will to automatically meaning that my life will go bad. So I can bristle underneath. Does that make sense? It's like the teenager in me can kick in. Do we have any teenagers in the room? Do we know of any teenagers? I know of a few. I was a teenager. In some ways, I still am. When I think of a teenager, I often think of rebellion for the sake of rebellion. Even the simplest topic, they'll want to bristle and push back. They don't even know why. But I think deep down we know that it comes from a fear that they're going to lose. If they give in, they lose. And this is how I can respond to the Jesus have your total way and I'll not put my will in this at all requirement of following him. If he gets his way, I lose. What's vital for us to remember is that in the end, this is, this is the exact opposite of what really happens. Paul teaches us in Romans 12:2 that God's will is always good, pleasing, and perfect. So I wrestle through this and bring it to him directly. I mean, he already knows it, right? I confess it. Father, I can't submit without you working in me. I ask you for the ability to repent and to submit to your plan. I don't know if you know this or not, but your ability, my ability to repent is a gift from God. Our ability to submit is a gift straight from heaven. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I think I'll repent today. God moves in us and gives us that gift. Beware of a hardened heart. So I ask him to cause me to see why his will is better and to make his wants my wants and for his will to be done. And now that we've honored our Heavenly Father and submitted to his will, Jesus model prayers changes direction to us asking for our needs. I've heard some who consider themselves pious Christians say, hey, you should never pray for yourself. Beware of words that involve I and we, or beware of saying I and we when you're praying. Baloney. I think James thought I might say something else. Baloney. Um, I don't, that's not true. God loves to hear what's really on our heart. He wants to know what we really want, what we really need. I mean, the Bible says we're at war, right? Doesn't a good general, even an average general, want to know what his soldiers need? They want to know what we care about and what we want. So here Jesus models this. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Here we're asking for our daily needs to be met. It brings to mind the daily provision of manna that God gave the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16. They got enough for that day, and then the next day they received that day's supply. 
Here I want to mention that today, much of the world, perhaps most of it, still understands the importance of praying for today's bread. Five minutes after leaving the Honduras airport, you will see that they live day to day. When we visit local churches there and they pray for their daily bread to be provided, they mean it literally. When we take food to the local villages during our trips there, a bag of dry goods and food will typically last a family of four 10 to 14 days. That's wealthy. They don't get that a lot. Conversely, most of us in the U.S. and other first world countries may pray this part of the Lord's Prayer without really thinking it's applicable for us. Because we often have an abundance of food, a lot of times more than we'll ever need, and maybe a little bit of money in the bank, we can take the idea of daily needs for granted if we're not careful. And this is very dangerous. What we have can be taken in a snap if God allows it. If you don't believe me, check out the book of Job. We are not nearly as self-sufficient as we may think we are. It's important for us to remember that if we are saved, we are not guaranteed anything other than our eternity with Jesus. Outside of this, all bets are off for life this side of heaven. So we're still praying and acknowledging that He meets our daily needs. He feeds us. He supplies us. This is true physically, and it's also true spiritually and emotionally. We need Him every day in every way. John 6, verse 35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if our pantry is full, we thank God, and then we ask Him even beg Him, still give us our daily bread. Then in verse 12, Jesus continues, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here we continue with our request for ourselves, this one being for the forgiveness of our sins. Then verses 14 and 15 add to this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this is an interesting addition that Jesus adds here. It brings up a question for the believer. I thought I was already forgiven for sins past, present, and future. Is that not true? Yes, it's true. Romans 8, 1 confirms, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. From what I've studied and what I've learned, It is completely true, biblically, that when we are saved, we are converted, justified, forgiven, and clean before God as our judge, as the judge. In the case of the disciples' prayer, or the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus is modeling here, we are standing in front of God as our Father. It's like we're telling our dad, Hey, Dad, I apologize for talking back to you earlier. Our dad loves us, and we're his kid either way. But we still need to set the record straight. J.I. Packer says it like this, The Lord's Prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father, and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, things would not be right between them and their father if they, until they have said sorry and asked him to overlook the ways they have let him down. I like this. As many of you know, I was adopted by Bob Gwaltney, who's here today, And I've spent my life since then calling him dad, as it should be. Now, this may be a shocker. Hold on to your chairs. But there have been plenty of times when I owed him an apology. 
There have been times when I, I needed to give him an apology, and hopefully I did. I think my account's clean. I can't really see him. He'll let me know at lunch. Um, I did not do this because he would disown me. But I did it out of love for him and setting things right. But still, this, in the second part of verse 12, Jesus adds this qualifier. Don't miss this. We ask God to forgive us in the same way we forgive those who have sinned against us. Then he goes into more detail in verses 14 and 15, saying our forgiveness rests on our heart position towards others who have sinned against us. And this is powerful. It brings to mind the parable of the ungrateful servant in Matthew chapter 18. This ungrateful servant refused to forgive a fellow servant of a minor debt after he was forgiven for an unpayable debt by the great king. Go back and read the parable. It did not end well for the ungrateful servant. It's brutal. I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to be that guy. John Stott says it like this. Jesus certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only those who are repentant, and one of the chief evidences of true repentance is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have seen or been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Again, this is serious stuff and it needs to be dealt with. I've come to realize that if I have an issue with forgiving others, which I have in the past, is very likely because I have an exaggerated view of their sins while minimizing my own sins. I don't know about you, but I know some folks, even in the church, who can carry around a grudge for years. They remember a slight in the parking lot from 2012. Or some time that a person walked by them in the hallway and didn't say hello. Three years ago. Now, maybe it's a legitimate beef. Someone said something inappropriate in a meeting and got in a dig that hurts, and today it still hurts. Maybe a former spouse cheated. Maybe someone was fired for wrong reasons. Regardless, if you're holding on to something that someone else did, I urge you to deal with it. Don't carry it around and let it ruin you because it will. This passage says you won't be forgiven if you don't forgive. This is serious stuff. This will mean coming to terms with the heaviness of our own sin. Even if I'm owed multiple apologies, even if it's legit, ultimately I must sit in the reality of my own brokenness and the fact that what I've done, thought, and said, and even the motivations behind many of the good things I've done, are deserving of hell. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Straight. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a counselor. Talk to the person directly. Do whatever has to be done to dislodge any resentment in your heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now please hear me. I'm preaching this to myself as much or more than I'm preaching it to you. For the disciple of Jesus, this is the only way. 
So let's beg God to move us constantly toward forgiveness. And then in the final petition in Jesus' prayer, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This addresses our request for success in spiritual warfare. It's twofold and set in the form of a negative positive request. First, do not bring us into temptation. And second, deliver us from the evil one who is the devil. The bottom line is this is a wartime cry for protection and help from the only one who can give it. Matthew chapter 4 records Jesus resisting the devil by himself in the wilderness. Jesus did this because he could. We cannot. Without our Heavenly Father's guidance, wisdom, and strength, we're toast. Remember, if we're born again, we're sheep, which unfortunately (laughs) means we're no match for Satan by ourselves. He would eat us alive, perhaps literally. We're helpless unless Jesus protects us. As a quick side note, don't think that if you're not born again that you get a pass. It's even worse. The end is brutal. Just mentioning this for the record so that no one thinks that they get a free pass, being born again is the way to go, I promise you. As His redeemed church, Jesus promises to be everything for us, which is such good news because in spiritual warfare, we don't need an assistant. We need a Savior. We don't just need a friend and a helper or a co-pilot. We need a hero. We need rescuing, protecting, and keeping. And this is why we pray. This is also clarifying to how we pray really matters. Again, as I started off by saying we're at war, and I want you to remember this. I want to remember this because it's always true. Many of you may feel this even now up close. Regardless of your current circumstances, I want to challenge you to talk with your Heavenly Father with this in mind. The enemy is very afraid of the prayed-up saint for whom life is sweet, but death is sweeter still. We need to continue growing in our prayer life. And part of our praying involves asking God to remind us why and how, over and over and over. And as this happens, we draw closer to God. We experience continual growth in our communion with our Heavenly Father. And we become who He designed us to become. Now, I'd like to invite the musicians up to um, play this last song. And as we do this, let's move a little quicker. As we do this, (laughs) um, I want to invite all of us to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to spend time um, during this song praying for yourself. It's okay to pray for yourself. Pray for whatever comes to mind. Maybe it's somebody that you're close to. Maybe it's something you need to deal with. 